Um, look, if you haven't noticed, this is, um, as, as a church, one of the things that we do is we just make our way through whole books of the Bible, which um, has some incredibly good perks, one of the which being that um, it doesn't allow us to sit here and choose which parts are our favorite themes that we're going to sit in and kind of ignore the ones that make us uncomfortable. It forces us to come into these parts of the Bible and to deal with these important texts, which God has inspired for our benefit uh, and prevent us from missing out. Um, so, yes, I do understand that that is probably the least Mother's Day text imaginable, um, but we are here for a reason, um, and we are going to hear what the Lord has to say to us through this. Um, if you don't know the story thus far, here's, here's where it starts. Um, as a church, we are making our way through the book of Romans in the New Testament. We're only in now chapter 2, um, and Romans is important. Romans is the core message of Christianity, the good news, the, the gospel at depth, expounded upon as deeply as you can imagine. It is the message that Jesus lived and died and rose again, and that salvation is available through faith in him for all who believe without exception. This is the the message of Christianity, and it is the message of Romans. Um, But because Romans is this message at depth, what happens in the first two chapters is that before we get to the good news, we we have to wade through the bad news. And the bad news is that if the good news, if, if the good news is that there is a savior, that there is salvation available, the bad news is that salvation is necessary, that there is a problem that we all need rescuing from. And we began this last week, didn't we? Mike walked us through Romans chapter, the, the, the last half of Romans chapter one, which tells us that there is a problem in this world. The problem of sin has spread to the whole of the human race. And as a result, we do not worship the God who made us. This is a dilemma that his, his wrath is coming. Yes, his, his passive wrath has been visited on us in the sense that God has allowed us to suffer the consequences of our own sin, but also his active wrath is coming and that God is coming himself to judge this world. The problem of sin is a big problem. Um, now we get to chapter 2 and the, the theme shifts only slightly. Um, We are still dealing with the problem of sin and the sinfulness of the human race, but we're looking at it by another lens. Um, Those those of you who were here when we began this book, remember we talked about the makeup in the Church of Rome that this letter was written to, and that there was really two kinds of believers. Ultimately, there's one kind of believer, only one kind of believer. But there was two visibly distinct groups of people in the Church at Rome, and that they are those who were Jewish by race and history, and those who were Gentile. Uh, And in this particular church, those who are Gentile are the majority. It seems that it is possible for someone who was of Jewish heritage specifically to have sat through the first chapter of Romans, everything that you've just heard last week if you were were here, and to have not gotten the message, to to have missed the point of what the Apostle Paul was saying. So in chapter 2, we turn our attention to um, a couple of big themes, one of which we're going to deal with this week, and then the other of which we're going to deal with next week. So we are going to um, spend two weeks here in Romans chapter 2, and the theme that we're going to consider this week is Paul's accusation that even religious Jewish folk are sinful. It's an important thing for us to consider. The, The primary application of this text is that both Jew and Gentile are in the same predicament in regards to sin and therefore the coming judgment of God. We're both going to need the same solution to the problem. But as an implication, which is helpful for us who are not Jewish necessarily, um, whilst not many of us are going to be of Jewish heritage, many of us have been Christians for a long time. 
Uh, And the same spiritual mistake that the first century Hebrews were making is alive and well in the church of today. And therefore, we need to hear this same warning that the Apostle Paul was um, giving to people who were falsely confident in their religion. Um, So let me um, read a few portions of chapter 2 out again for you to kind of remind you of the major theme that we're dealing with today. Um, First, we'll read verses 1 to 11. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you judge, you, who, you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, impenitent means unrepentant, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. Um, Let's skip down to verse 17. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know His will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed in the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You feel it? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, how's this for an accusation? The name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. Down to verse 28. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What's all this talk about? Romans is like a chain, the first eight chapters. Do you remember us saying this? This is a a sustained logical argument to help us get our head around the core message of Christianity. Um, And eventually, in chapter three, Paul is going to introduce us to the good news of salvation by faith in Jesus alone. That's when that's going to come up. But to get there, first we need to hear the bad news that salvation is necessary. There is a problem that we need to be saved from, and that problem is the problem of sin. The first half of this problem has been applied to the broader world, and yet it seems that as that was, like you, you can imagine the, the letter, this letter being read out in the church in Rome. It seems that as if, as if there were some Jewish people sitting in that congregation listening to that and Paul, who was writing this letter, expected them to have a certain kind of response. And that response was to have been clapping and applauding while God's judgment against the nations was read out. Yes, go get them, go get them. Oblivious to the fact that the same problem exists in their own life. And so this Jewish apostle turns his attention to his own people by race and he tries to convince them that they are not free of this dilemma. 
he speaks to the person of religious heritage, do you understand? And tries to convince them that they too are sinners. Eventually, in chapter 3, he'll bring these two threads together in verses 9 and 10 when he'll say this, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. We are dealing with the doctrine that gets called total depravity. The idea that every single aspect of our lives has been affected by the taint of sin. We are never as good as we should be, even if we are not always at our worst. A message which says, do you hear this? All people have sinned means them as well. And me as well. If all are under sin, I am under sin. Do you feel that? This is, this is not a message which applies selectively to some kinds of people and not to other kinds of people. But this is the difficulty, and it's an important one for us to consider. Here is the difficulty that the first century Jewish person had with getting their head around Jesus. It's the same difficulty that many of us who've been raised in the church or have been around it for a long time will share with them, which makes this all the more relevant. There's an interesting thing that the human heart does, but it does it so consistently that it should cease to be surprising to us. There's a big question in life that we're all looking for the answer to. And the big question is this, how do I know where I stand with God? Another way to, to phrase that question is this, on what basis can I consider myself to be one of God's people? Do you feel that? On what grounds do I get to say, I belong to God, he is for me, I'm one of his. On what what basis? Where does that confidence come from? And there is, we will see across the rest of this book of Romans, one correct answer to that question, and one alone. And the correct answer is, I belong to God on the basis of my faith in the atoning work of Jesus alone. The Savior is the basis of my faith. I received his salvation as an undeserved gift of grace through faith. Only correct answer, the Christian answer, the biblical answer, Jesus' own answer to that question. It's true. And we here today who are Christians, we believe that. That's how you became a Christian. But that's not the end of the story in our experience of relationship with God, because it turns out that my broken, sinful nature, which is left in existence even after I'm saved, hates that answer. Hates it. That grace is anathema to our fallen nature. There is something in us, even the believers, do you understand what I'm saying? There is something in us that hates grace. It sounds like it couldn't possibly be true, and yet it's so constantly true. Grace, it turns out, is devastating to my ego. How can salvation be of grace without at the same time telling me that I am inadequate? Do you see that? If if, if the only way for me to be saved is an undeserved gift, that makes me undeserving. That's, That's offensive. It calls me... Um, into a position where I will be forever dependent. I have to say goodbye to self-sufficiency. 
it calls me to a totality of response, to hand over myself completely in order to be saved. Because there's not some, there's not any single portion of my life which I can take care of without this grace. And my flesh hates it. And so does yours. There is something in us all that wants the answer to be anything but that. It's not new. Last week we saw the response to God of unbelief, of of rejecting God's word outright and plunging headlong into rebellion. This week we see another kind of rebellion against God, and it's the rebellion of religious hypocrisy. It takes many forms, and yet is no less deadly to the soul than sinful rebellion. You can oppose the rightful rule of God in your life through open rebellion against His law. And you can oppose the rightful rule of God in your life through skin-deep religiosity. And both of those things will have the same end eternal separation from him under his wrath. That's the bad news. Look, why don't I give you three different examples of this kind of rebellion that we see just here in chapter 2. These are three ways that a false believer lays claim to being God's people. These are three, you could call them cheap substitutes for saving faith. Things which our flesh would be satisfied with, but God would not be satisfied with. They are not the gospel. Um, Cheap substitute number one is this. There are some who will conclude that they are God's people as a result of their birth. I am a Christian. I'm a believer because I was born into a family of believers. Do you feel that? Um, In the first century, it was Israel who struggled with this the most. For the Hebrew, it was their birth into a Jewish family as much as anything else. It was the fact that they were Jewish, that they presumed they were one of God's people. This far into history, many, many Christians think the same. And Paul tells them in verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew and you rely, this is, this is by race, right? I'm a Hebrew. And I rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed in the law. If you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness... Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? We've got to feel that one, right? We in the church, we know God's teaching around sexuality and marriage. We know how narrow and uh, important it is that we honor God in this area of our lives. How silly would it be for us to condemn others for not meeting that standard whilst ignoring the fact that that standard is not met in our own lives? Do you feel it? This is actually a big problem in Australia. Uh, here's an example. Um, between all the denominations in Australia, in the, uh, the censuses that we do, as the government does them, according to the most recent census, it is still true that more than half of the population of Australia claims some kind of Christian faith in the census. However, 
depending on which research body you use as your metric, in the average month, not week, month, somewhere between 8 and 14% of Australians will attend a church. It's a disconnect, isn't it? Yes, I'm a tick box, Presbyterian. I'm a Catholic, Uniting Church, whatever it is. We can chuck the Baptists in there too, why not? When it's on a census form. But in the month of April, no church will see me. Cultural faith. See, I'm not saying we're saved by going to church. Hopefully you're not hearing me say that. What I'm saying is that there is a difference between a sincere believer and one who lays claims to the status of a believer even though belief is not present in their life. You feel that? Cultural faith is a cheap substitute for actual belonging. It's not the same thing. Why would we want cultural faith? Because it costs me nothing. I get to lay claim to all the benefits and the perks and never have to surrender anything. The flesh loves cultural faith. The flesh hates the gospel. Here's the thing about it, verse 24, is that cultural faith isn't morally neutral. It's abhorrent. Speaking to the the Hebrews, Paul said this, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. How many people blaspheme the name of God because they met a fake Christian and looked at their life and thought, you're no different to me. In some, in some instances, you're worse than me. And you claim to be one of God's people. It's, it's not neutral. It's, it's, it's offensive. It's disgusting. Um, how many people in this country think that they have rejected Christianity and uh, having seen the real thing when really what they have rejected is skin-deep religiosity? That's cheap substitute number one. Cheap substitute number two. It's similar to it, but it is different. Cheap substitute number two says, I belong to God on the basis of the fact that I did the ritual. I went through the ceremony. I lay hold of the, the symbol. And therefore, I'm one of God's people. For the Hebrew, this was circumcision. For the 21st century Christian. Are we in the 21st century? I've lost track. I think, yeah, that sounds right. Thank you. Yeah. For us, it's what? Baptism? Communion? Confession? Church attendance? Thank you, Pick. Instead of thinking that being God's people is going to require the central place in my whole existence, I swap that out for a ritual, a ritual or a ceremony which I can complete in a day and we're done. I am now religious. Paul tells us, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. 
his praise is not from man, but from God. The problem that the Hebrew listener had in the first century we have today. No one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly. I'm going to say that again. No one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly. A famous Christian speaker once said, what a man is on his knees alone before God, that he is no more. When no one is looking, who are you? Those are the, those are the moments when, when God is looking. How, how strange is it, brothers and sisters, that, that our flesh would be satisfied, that our sinful nature would be satisfied by having symbols whilst not having the things they symbolize. How, how strange is it that there is something in human nature that would delight to be a member of a church, but not in any way live as a member of a church? That, that, would, that would delight in the symbol of baptism, having been buried with Christ and raised again to new life with Him, only to fail to have new life with Him. And yet how common a mistake it is that we make. You are not a believer because you did the ritual. It's a cheap substitute. Why does the flesh like cheap substitutes? Because it requires nothing of you. You can do a ritual. You're capable of doing that all on your own. You don't need to be made new to complete a ritual. You can walk out of the ritual with your head held high. Look what I did. Wasn't I wonderful? You cannot encounter grace and remain in that posture. Cheap substitute number three. Oh, how I wish this was a thing that did not exist. Cheap substitute number three presumes upon grace. Our flesh concludes, because God is gracious and because God forgives sin, my sin doesn't matter. I can sin all I want. He's going to forgive me anyway. Do you presume, O man, verse 3, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and impatience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Grace is real, do you understand? He says, when he says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? His kindness and forbearance and patience are real. Let, let, let no one ever say that God is not patient with us, that God is not kind to us, that God does not bear with us over a long period of time. And yet there is a, there is a twisted kind of heart which any one of us could grow into, which says, because he is patient, I can presume that I am in his patience. 
without taking seriously the significance of the problem that I'm being rescued from. Do, do, do you feel what I'm talking about? Cheap grace. Costless grace. Cheap grace isn't real grace. The, 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 the price of my forgiveness was not cheap, was it? God did not overlook my sin. His perfect eternal son was crucified in my place for my sin. How could I treat sin as a light thing? Because God is gracious. Cheap grace is an abomination. It is repulsive. Real grace is costly and transformative. Chapter 1 of Romans. The wrath of God is being revealed against the sinfulness of the human race. Chapter 2 of Romans. That means you, believers. (laughs) That means you, those who think that it doesn't mean you. What he's saying is that the unbelieving world has a problem. What is more, the believing world has a problem. We are not free from the taint of sin, even those of us who stand in covenant with God. By the end of chapter 2, we should be bags packed, (laughs) ready to go, give me the solution. This is, this is what Paul is trying to do in us. He's not saying these things for no reason. He's not just saying these things in order to condemn us and leave us stranded in an aimless and directionless guilt. He is speaking a difficult, painful, and real truth for a reason. And it's not to condemn us, brothers and sisters, but to awaken us to our need. To awaken us to our needs because there is a God in heaven who wants to meet us in that place of need and rescue us. And until we see the problem, we will not trust him. People haven't changed since the first century, do you understand? Just like then, there are people now who believe in Jesus, who have got nothing to do with him in reality. And just like the the drunk in the gutters on a Friday evening, they need the grace of God to take their heart and make them alive. It is sin by a different name, in a different form, but sin no less. Maybe you grew up in a family that believes, and so you think you are for God and God is for you. Maybe you love church as a, as a community for what it does in the wider community or because you like the quality of relationships that exist in a place like this. Maybe cultural faith is part of your political worldview or your traditional view of the, the way things that should be. Maybe you like it when Jesus criticizes other people's sin. Go get him. But when Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, decides to meddle in your affairs and requires something uncomfortable from you, you find the end of your belief very quickly. Feel the difference? If Jesus criticizes you and calls you to repentance, what happens? And if the answer is, I get angry at him and his messenger then it may well be that you are not a believer. Not in the saving sense. You're just a different kind of sinner. 
and Jesus will not entrust himself to you, ultimately, you are still his enemy. You can oppose the rightful rule of God in your life through open rebellion against the law, and you can oppose the rightful rule of God in your life through skin-deep religiosity. Both lead to death. Both have the same end. Both will find you eternally separated from God and under his wrath. Jesus speaks to us like this as a kindness, because if this is you, you need to come to Jesus as both Savior and Lord. And when you come, you'll find him willing. He doesn't fit into your life. That's not how the life of faith works. He doesn't, he doesn't sort of fit around our preferences and our conveniences into the, the holes that we leave for him in our time. That's not what life with God looks like. To the true believer, your life is structured around Jesus Christ as the center, as Savior and Lord. You live your life by faith in him. You worship him as your highest priority. His opinion of you is the highest matter. Serving him is your highest joy. We are saved, do you understand, by faith, not by works. But saving faith will transform you over a lifetime. It will cause you to be born again to a new life. And that new life is fundamentally different to the old life. If your life as a Christian doesn't look any different to your life before you were a Christian, we've got questions to ask. In kindness, do you understand? Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John that he didn't come into this world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So come and be saved through him. That's, that's the message today. Romans doesn't end at chapter 2, and our sermon today can't end at, at chapter 2. There is, there is good news for the religious sinner. Jesus has come to reconcile you to God. So get on your knees before him under the weight of your sin and cry out to the Savior for mercy and experience it. Do not take religious sin lightly. Do not presume upon his grace. Have mercy on me. Set me free from slavery to my own nature. That is the prayer of the religious sinner. Set me free to live for you and with you. Give me the real thing instead of the cheap substitute. And you'll find him willing. He will have you. You could have lived a lifetime of blaspheming his name in this way, and he would have you if you would turn. Why would we be content to have the things of God, but not God himself? Why would we be content to have the symbols and not the things that they symbolize? Why would you want to be a member of this church and fail to be a member of God's kingdom? Why would you want to take communion and fail to commune with God? Why would you willingly starve your soul to death in the middle of his plenteous grace and provision? Please, please, please hear me. Do not allow your soul to die of thirst sitting next to the water of life. Come.
come to him in humility and brokenness and need and desperation and find out the meaning of grace. An undeserved kindness given without reservation. A saviour who is gentle and patient and bears with us. Not because we presume upon him, but because he knows our frame. He, He knows that we can't do it without his help. He knew that before he rescued you. Come and experience reconciliation with God. What it means to walk with God. Not just to know about God. Come because he is willing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hard parts of your Bible. (laughs) Be it from us to look at them and go, that's uncomfortable. Let's move on. You have put these words here in your word for our benefit. We thank you for them. It's all well and good, Lord, for us here in the church to look at the lives of the people outside the church and to know that they're far from you. But Lord, prevent us from overlooking our own sin. Prevent us from having the kind of judgmentalness spoken of here in the beginning of Romans 2, which sees sin in others and overlooks sin in me. Lord, we pray that you would humble us. Lord, we, we who are your people don't want a text like this to make us afraid to come near to you. We want, we want it to have the, the other kind of effect. We, we, we want it to make us afraid to be far from you. To fear being returned to slavery to sin. To fear being hypocritical. Pretending to be something we are not. That's what that word means. Father, I need your grace today. I need your forgiveness today. I need Jesus now. And I thank you that I get to have him. That he is a rock and a fortress and a hiding place and a refuge and where I can run to safety. I thank you for that because, Lord, without him, I do not have safety. I have earned your wrath. Give me grace. Make me new. Lead me into both a new kind of life and a different kind of eternity. Give me the real thing and not the cheap substitute. I plead with you in the name of Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind.